This is Simulcast, a high-fidelity podcast about healthcare simulation. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Simulcast. Today we catch up with our whole Simulcast team, myself, Jesse Spur, Victoria, Jess and Ben. Uh, this is a little bit of an unusual one. We're going to have just a really a bit of a debrief today. So this is going to be the Simulcast Team Debrief COVID-19 edition to kind of check in with where everyone's at and um, pull out a few things that we've learned through either clinical practice, um, reorganizing our teams and our environments or through sim and preparation for this. So I might just open up by saying g'day to everyone and hi Vic, how are you going? Uh, very well, thank you and so excited to be on the call with all four of us. Awesome. Jess, how's things? Oh, good, very good. Uh, happy to be here and chatting as usual. Feels a bit strange but here we are. Yeah, we'll explore that later, <laughs> why it feels strange. Um, ben, how are you? Mate, I am good and really uh, happy to be among good people tonight, uh, sharing some stories with you all. Oh, that's lovely to hear. So I thought um, to give us a little bit of a structure, like any good debrief, we're um, going to follow a bit of a framework. So we, what we might do is just a bit of a round the group and just see where we're at, what's what's been going on and sort of what's occupying our time and minds at the moment. So I might just throw it open um, to anyone who is keen to kick us off. Uh, I don't know, Ben, do you want to sort of kick us off? What's what's your day-to-day look like? How's things been going? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's been interesting, I guess, uh, being pediatric, we're in a different sort of level of concern about our patients specifically, but uh, certainly working with a lot of unknowns initially. Uh, so I've been working with a small team to kind of reinvent our pediatric department flow and models of care within that region clinically sort of hanging out in the eye of the storm, waiting to see if that tsunami arrives and whether our workforce is going to be cut heavily uh, and trying to work out the best way to optimize training while simultaneously trying to help with policies and procedures at the same time. And I guess from an educationist perspective, I've been really enjoying working on the translational tools for our statewide pediatric guidelines. It's funny you mentioned the eye of the storm there because I actually nearly titled this, um, had the working title of this episode, the eye of the storm. I was wondering, what are you, what are you getting at with that that um, analogy? Well, I guess certainly where I work in a metropolitan pediatric emergency department with a low number of clinical cases within our health service, we have had this incredibly rapid rate of change within the department and a lot of preparation, uh, but our public health system seems to so far have been holding off a huge outbreak. So we're trying to work out uh, if that's going to arrive and then if that arrives, what does it look like? Yeah, we're certainly situated, I guess, with a a little bit of a privileged position at the moment, but it's that mix of um, privilege but not trying trying not to get complacent. So Vic, what's been going on for you? Yeah, I'm going to quote a little bit of Dickens here, Jesse. It was the best of times and the worst of times, tale of two cities. Uh, It is the worst of times because clearly this is potentially one of the most horrendous challenges we might have to face. But as a simulation person, I guess this really has been a time to shine if we think of ourselves as integrated and responsive to health service priorities. And so I have also found myself with the same kind of liability of at one level almost exhilarated with the amount, volume and focus of the simulation that we've been doing at the Gold Coast. 
but at the second level, really wondering if any of it actually makes a difference. And at the same time, while there's a lot of activity, really thinking very rigorously about whether it's making a difference to what we're doing, uh, but also finding the silver linings in terms of collaboration, in terms of discovering that you can review processes and uh, finding better ways of doing things that I think will extend way beyond the pandemic. So I would say at the moment, uh, sort of cautiously excited, but maybe for some of the wrong reasons. Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting time um, to have a fully functioning sim service, and we might come back to that because it's it's kind of everyone all of a sudden turns and looks to you. So we'll we'll have a look into sort of a bit more of the detail of what's been going on from your sim service point of view. Mm. Jess, how have things been for you in Newcastle? It, I guess, much like uh, Vic and Ben described. You know, it feels like we're in an eye of a storm, uh, somewhat in limbo. And at the same time, you know, it's exciting to be working with people that you might not work with uh, in your usual day-to-day. It's really great to see, uh, you know, people that wouldn't necessarily be in the spotlight, like infectious diseases and public health. And so I think from that broader health perspective, it's really interesting but it does feel a little bit like anticlimactic at the moment and um, just working you know we were seeing a steady climb in numbers and now that seems to be dropping and we've all been working really hard and surgery has stopped you know I work um, in the surgery department at the moment and um, so it's a little bit strange like there's some people that are just incredibly um, busy frantically preparing and then there's others their work has just come to a standstill so it's just a, a really funny mix yeah it is are you doing have you been doing any clinical shifts in ICU Jess um, I have been booked for a few and then they've been cancelled because that's how um, silent quiet you know I said the word <laughs> it's been quiet right you've doomed it I know. Us all. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. <laughs> the pandemic so, was going really well up until then. <laughs> thanks, JSP. Yeah, great. National disgrace. It's on my head. <laughs> <laughs> we'll watch for the spike tomorrow. So this, if there is a spike on the 10th of April, uh, it is down to Jess Stokes Parish. <laughs> Okay, so I guess we might might just draw a line under that and, and move on to a bit more detail of what, of what um, everyone's been doing and um, see if we can sort of pluck a bit of learning um, for each other. Um, I guess just it probably serves as a good point um, now that I mentioned the date to say where we're at. So in Australia, we have had somewhat of a flatter curve of cases than predicted. I, I recall... Um, sometime back in early March when we were around 250 cases and there was a lot of um, concern given that uh, Italy went from 250 cases to 17,000 uh, within a three or two and a half week window. So we were, we were nervous figuring out uh, what our doubling rate would sit like. And so here we are um, over a month later since that time and we are currently sitting at uh, somewhat uh, somewhere around the 6,000, slightly over 6,000 confirmed COVID cases with also relatively low rate of admission to intensive care and um, not the overwhelming 
system collapse that um, some of our colleagues in the Northern Hemisphere have and are experiencing. So there's a position of privilege, I guess, but I, one of the things that's been underlined is this sense uh, that's come through from you guys, uh, something I'm deeply feeling as well as this kind of anticipatory anxiety, maybe, I guess, excitement's probably the wrong word for it, but just wanting to kind of get on with it if it's coming or blow it away if it's not. So I might just kind of go into, uh, go to um, Vic, you, how, how have you find, found managing that? I mean, I guess you've, you're wearing the two slash three hats, your academic um, role, the your emergency physician role, and then steering the, the strategy and doing a lot of the delivery of the Gold Coast Uni hospital sim service. So what's that kind of felt like and looked like and what are some things that have come up for you? Yeah, uh, thanks, Jesse. So it's interesting. I mean, the student simulation has really backed right off, partly because of the social distancing rules, etc. And uh, my emergency physician hat on, I've just tried to be a bit of a good soldier. I've seen a few suspected cases. And uh, I think I see some of the same anxiety in my colleagues. But I think my the role that's been most impacted by this, obviously, is the simulation service. And uh, it really, I think, has been a critical moment for simulation and I feel so grateful that the last six years it feels like we've been preparing for this moment, uh, particularly in terms of being integrated as a what I would obviously call a translational simulation service and one that really looks to review and improve health system processes uh, as opposed to you know places that rely on learners coming to learn in groups. Many of them have actually shut down. So I guess it just this is the time for the inter- integrated simulation service. Uh, it's funny you mentioned early March and I've just pulled up an email that we had a meeting of our simulation service on the 8th of March. And at that point I said, look, guys, I think we've got two weeks, maybe three. And I remember saying that. And I said, well, so what we've got to do is practice our usual patient care in PPE. We've got to practice this advanced airway and ventilation for patients. We've got to test out the interfaces and teamwork processes. And maybe we have to look at rapid upskilling of staff for critical care roles who haven't been involved in it. And the final thing I said was we have to prepare staff for difficult conversations and palliative care. And it's kind of funny looking back at that now and obviously 30 days later because uh, we really jumped in. And in that time, we've done over 250 in situ simulations involving probably over 1,500 to 2,000 of our staff. And, uh, you know, we've really looked at a whole range of processes. And I still have no idea whether we're going to need it, whether what we've done is effective. But I, I guess I've been impressed at the volume. And certainly we've learned a few things along the way. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to sort of hear, Ben, your reflection on that because it sounds like you've done uh, done some similar sort of work with sim preparation. Um, uh, what I'd be really interested in is what, what have you seen that that's, if anything, done to the way that the team is working? Is it, has that changed anything culturally um, by the intensity of actually just getting together and having some um, shared focus and shared shared goals? Well, I'd have to say I, I've done a pretty poor job with Insight Sim in our hospital, but fortunately a number of other people have really taken up the baton. Um, and I think to me the thing that I found really inspiring has been the way that this 
perceived potential external catastrophic threat has really broken down a lot of tribal barriers within our surface. We've actually got, for example, the orthopedic service have come and based themselves in the emergency department. Uh, they're seeing children that they would normally uh, decline to see because they would ask for a pediatric subspecialty to review them and things. Um, and so there has been a very strong shift towards collaboration and I think it has shifted our sense of who we are as a healthcare tribe to something much more broader as we kind of unite against this potential threat. I think for me what I found interesting certainly from the sim design point of view has really been trying to find the balance between encouraging or empowering innovation and new ideas in a really uh, new healthcare problem versus trying to rein in making sure that we're not implementing untested and unproven techniques. And I guess one thing that's concerning me in pediatrics, where we have a very different pretest probability of serious disease, is that we are getting an element of sort of idea contagion where one department or one hospital starts implementing something we've never done before. Uh, and we start making more and more rapid incremental changes to the way that we're doing things like RSI, which in pediatric emergency, is still pretty rare and so while some of those ideas have a lot of merit um, to me one thing that's worrying me is we're starting to introduce a huge amount of noise uh, and new ways of doing things based on relatively hypothetical advice sometimes and so we've actually upped our difficulty with pediatric intubation hugely uh, and trying to find that balance between this is really important to protect our staff versus this is something that might have been made up and I'm not sure why we've incorporated it has been a really interesting challenge. Yeah, the the signal versus noise ratio is very tilted towards noise, um, I've found, and that's that's a real challenge because a lot of the noise is opinion. Um, the So Jess, I, I think it'll be really interesting to sort of hear a little bit more because I think a lot of our listeners won't necessarily know what your day job entails. They'll know of you as the um, moulage, uh, moulage extraordinaire, um, the researcher, the simulationist, but um, your day job and I guess just through the lens of someone who through sim thinks a lot about iterative quality improvement and what you're seeing, um, how that's meshing with the way that your system is actually going about things. Yeah, so I think... Um... I am currently working in a surgical service at the moment and I'm leading, I guess, the majority portion of surgical outcomes improvement strategy for the hospital. So, you know, surgical audits, education for um, medical staff, a, a whole variety of things and a lot of data collection and, um, you know, just broadly speaking. But it's been interesting as this COVID has evolved because um, what my role has kind of been in all of this is is almost a bit of a bridge between uh, executive communications to the floor staff and and to the, those key stakeholders that I would normally liaise with within my role. Um, and so I, I really identify with this whole thought of um, there's so much noise. How do we get the signal through? There are so many opinions. There's no clear direction around, um, you know, where does the sim need to be? And also touching on what Ben's highlighting as well is this, you know, 
idea contagion. And so we're seeing a lot of that and trying to find ways to actually harness these ideas into either action or I guess to capture some of the emotion that's there as well because what I'm finding is there's so much anxiety and emotion that how can we communicate effectively uh, and utilize education and debriefing strategies within our response plan. Now I'm not part of the um, team that is the simulation team but it is interesting just you know the various ways that people do things and when there's not a simulation service that's embedded within the hospital itself, you know, you do find that there are many different approaches to how the simulation is um, delivered. And so I guess what I've seen is a a broad mix of people really utilising sim to its full capacity, you know, testing for um, droplet spray when doing uh, rapid sequence intubation in theatres, working out steps, from moving through theatres to, you know, upskilling staff at skill stations um, and talking through skills as opposed to doing them. And so there's this wide spectrum of approaches to how we might do it. And it's really interesting because I think as Vic touched on, we don't know what's effective in this situation. I mean, none of us were around 100 years ago for the last pandemic. So how do you how do you work out what's the best method in this situation? Really few really good points there. The, the thing that's come up, I think, from through most of you guys, your initial reflections has been that idea of or idea contagion. Um, I think playing on the, the pandemic pun a little bit um, with that, it, it, one of the problems I've seen that bring is that um, – things just keep getting dropped in outside of any structured sort of way of bringing them into practice. So there'll be a COVID grab box appear in um, it, on a shelf without any sort of knowledge as to where it came from. Um, there'll be some Sims run. Uh, I guess, Vic, I might come back to you in terms of the one of the things I've observed and certainly seems to be rampant on Twitter where I'm still spending too much time um, for my own good at the moment is um, everyone has just gone, let's, we've got a sim. We've got a sim, 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 sim. Um, it's, it, it's great. There's, uh, we, we just get on with it. We don't, we, this is the time we pick something. We just pick lots of things and we just do it. Um, is that, always the best thing because I think everyone's saying oh it's very easy to sort of say this is a high risk um, situation for healthcare workers we need to practice it Um, we need to do this but is is sim always going to be the best approach with this yeah clearly not Uh, I think now more than ever from a simulation point of view we need to be really clear in what we're trying to achieve with any given session scenario focus And I think the key is also then knowing what it is that we want to achieve, thinking about the role of the simulation service group uh, facilitator in that process. 
And so for us, you know, we were fortunate to sort of start with a high level of integration and a high level of skill at Insight Your Delivery and also an existing model, which is, look, we're here to help you test whatever it is you want to do and you take responsibility for what it is that that is. Obviously, for me, that gets a little muddy in the emergency department, but for the most part, I can very happily go along to cath lab and say what it is that you want to test or we want to test whether we can actually run an arrest in the cath lab. Uh, in a COVID positive patient and and sort of act as facilitator of that process. Because I think you're right, we very quickly see uh, a variability in the governance and oversight of the change processes. And while I think we can very quickly review and test old systems and maybe even propose new ones, people have massively overestimated the capabilities of humans to change and and the, and the ease with which that change is enacted. Uh, and some of these 12-page guidelines that you see, I mean, they're great probably for the people that wrote them, but the ability of anyone to enact that change in the moment when they've got a whole clinical practice lifetime before that of doing something else is about nil. So, um, you know, I'm sure you'll get onto this, but I've admired Ben's work in thinking what a great cognitive aids, brief infographics, that kind of thing. But I think your, your question also gets to the heart of what should we be doing and what shouldn't we be doing? And, and I think if you're clear that this is a diagnostic sim or it's just a walkthrough of the operating theatre to see how the flows go, then you have a small number of people that are at the centre of this process that are sort of actually trying to see how this works in practice. If you've got an emergency department of 50 consultants who are all feeling a little anxious about how they do this somewhat modified RSI, then you run short sims that are about embedding, practicing, and you have three or four people involved. And, you know, there are some novel challenges now. You can't actually have 50 people at your debrief, can you? So thinking and you have to clean your mannequins very effectively. You don't really want to be dragging them around the hospital uh, and you want to be thinking what's the simplest thing I can possibly do. And I've certainly had people ring me and say, how do I do a sim? This is not the time to start doing it because the level of anxiety and if you, you omit very important things like the pre-brief and what this is about and recognising, as Jess said, the anxiety you're, you're part of managing, then I think you, you can actually do more harm than good. That's a really interesting point because something that I've observed is um, places that don't have a very robust um, SIM infrastructure, um, there's been every blockade under the sun, people pursuing perfection before getting anything going um, previously have flipped this switch to go, well, it's just got to be good enough, but we've got to do some SIM. So I guess it's that um, I've really seen that that shift to going, oh no, we've just got to get out and do some sim now where there's been a real blockade to that previously. And I, I guess the, all I can guess is that that's the desire for action because while we've got all of this anxiety and anticipation, um, it's like Courtney Howard, one of our colleagues prepping for CODA um, frames it nicely as action feels better than anxiety. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And uh, unfortunately what that means is that then people run something that they think of as a sim when really what they want to do is get everybody else to change their behaviour to what they think it should be. 
and that then just breeds psychological lack of safety. <laughs> and, um, you know, I wanted to say this on the podcast, but, you know, I have had people ring me up and say, I really want to run a sim, just tell me how to do it. And I said, well, it's a bit more complicated than that. And then they quote at me things like perfect is the enemy of good. And I just say, actually, no, shit is the enemy of good. <laughs> you do need to have a baseline oh, capability. <laughs> of course I went there. <laughs> I'm glad you got an opportunity to drop it in. I was very much trying to set you for that one. Thank now, you. I will I will definitely bring you in, Ben, at the moment, but I do love a good segue. And I was really picking up there, Vic, on the, the distinction you made under that translational simulation framework of diagnosis versus uh, therapy. So I guess the thing is both need needs saturation as one of their outcomes. One of the things I've seen um, is some very well-intended diagnostic sims that have had no saturation in terms of the distribution of um, knowledge gained from doing it. And then I guess the flip side to that is if we're doing a therapeutic sim in terms of um, a bunch of people learning a new airway process, we need some saturation target from that. That is one thing I have seen done very, very well um, in my unit was back-to-back um, drilling of the of a protected um, intubation process. Um, I guess the flip side is uh, I've also heard through the grapevine of um, more diagnostic sims and not really got a good insight into what the outcomes of it are. So I might actually segue to you Ben because this is something that you've been doing some great work and obviously Vic and Jess chime in on this too in distributing I guess the knowledge translation aspects um, out of uh, in combination with a simulation program and what what's what's a framework you think of when when doing that maximizing the outcome from a simulation program Ben? Oh that's a really good question um, <clears throat> well I guess to give you background I guess that I've had a quite a positive kind of exciting experience for me in that for this pandemic, I've been able to work with our organization because we have a statewide educational mandate. So I got invited in some early guideline development groups. And so I had this privilege of getting to collaborate on those guidelines while they were being developed, but not so much from a knowledge base because I'm uh, no genius when it comes to pandemics, but from an educator's perspective. And so while I got access to many smart people who are making decisions about what those recommendations should be, we were able to in tandem develop the educational support material kind of in real time so that when our statewide pediatric guidelines on COVID were complete, we were able to release both the guidelines and our educational support packages in synchrony. So here's the guideline, here's the poster, here's the infographics for your staff, and here are some simulations to reinforce their key messages. Um, and what was nice is that while they were being developed, we were kind of taking the SIMS and the draft guidelines and then going and running the SIMS from a diagnostic perspective, uh, finding the clinical kind of questions that were coming up and then being able to take some of those back to the guideline committee um, and that that could help shape uh, the kind of questions that the guideline at least needed to answer. Um, so it was exciting from that perspective. Um, and I think it, in some ways it was kind of a dream situation to be in where you could be getting sort of a clinical back and forth on what the recommendations would look like when they played out and bringing that back to the experts. Um, I think what has been fascinating for us because we've released both those guidelines and the SIMS in a statewide perspective is trying to find 
what is the key clearest message we can send that has an evidence base for it that won't cause confusion within a range of hospitals that have different equipment and different pathways um, and really having to work hard to try and break it down into the simplest, most sensible and straightforward principles um, while still being flexible enough that individual hospitals can take those either diagnostically or um, educationally to kind of get their data and look at how they're going to do it in their environment. So, for example, our retrievals team has different equipment to our tertiary department, which has a different type of uh, entitled CO2 uh, equipment to our metropolitan mixed emergencies, and they all attach differently to the HMA filter that you need to have now in a different place than we used to. And so how do we display that visually in one infographic that somehow works for all hospitals has been a really interesting challenge. But I think um, utilising the SIM team early, even in guideline development, has had some unexpected positive outcomes. And they look really fantastic, just to They're say. very pretty. I will yeah. say that. <laughs> well, they're very clear. They're very clear. I mean... That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. Agreed. And we, and we did just like, well, what is, if we're going to do an infographic, we need to find something that that's actually useful for. And what is it useful for that is clear enough and simple enough that you can get across in a very quick visual image? And that's what it should be used for. And if you need to convey something more complex, we need a different educational intervention. Yeah, I think just to jump in here, I, I think I've heard this from a lot of people and I listened to the SIM1 uh, Canadian uh, seminar, webinar, which I would encourage everyone to have a listen to. And Glenn Posner was talking about this, how he's never made so many videos. Uh, I haven't looked at all his videos, but I think people have really thought about how do I disseminate the important messages that we've learned? What are the things we're trying to train towards and trying to find ways of leveraging those? And certainly for us, if you can't have 50 people in a sim watching and benefiting from something, you have to think about how else you can convey those messages. Yeah, it, it's does it is something that I've noticed because I've been very much um, between oh, three main jobs um the last the last couple of months and one is working exclusively in clinical service provision so when i'm at work i'm on the floor working um often in a team leader role in the icu or a, um or a bedside role at and at home uh obviously parenting and um and also renovating so i feel like i'm kind of we're, we're madly renovating at the moment so i feel a little bit like nero fiddling while the world is burning um but but it's it's again that's my source of action to kind of keep that's things just under your control special healthcare worker hour shopping at bunnings isn't it <laughs> but but one thing i guess that despite not being involved in sim at the moment i've noticed a lot of things that i've learned through uh, developing simulations uh, through debriefing, through um, thinking about the data that needs to come out and how we clarify that is a role I've been trying to help with is how to organize a lot of the noise into something that's a bit clear and yeah. can be, uh, I guess, translated easily to, to colleagues. 
I'd like to really kind of drag you in there, Jess, um, because I've noticed something that you've been doing and um, for our listeners, just it might be really interesting to hear some of the media media training you've been doing, but you've really heavily lent into this outward-facing public health voice for friends and colleagues and um, I guess a broader community as well. And I think that's a role a lot of us are unofficially taking is the... um, is the interpreters. So Mm. can you just kind of give us a few sort of key points on that interpretation role that we're all playing as well? Yeah, I think um, I find it a particularly uncomfortable role. Um, I find it really challenging and I I find it something that really stretches me. Um, And I think that it's, it's really helped me to understand how to put things in the right language and to understand what I might say could be interpreted so differently. And I mean, we see that in simulation and and I guess all of us as debriefers, we've all had experiences where we say something and somebody else just does not take it the way that we intended and it, and it escalates, but it has been really interesting. Um, I guess I've taken for granted the inside knowledge that I have and the way that I understand healthcare and the way that I understand how the system works. And um, and I've had the opportunity, I guess, to develop content that's for the general public. And it has been interesting because I've really had to learn um, when there's just too much detail and that the, the researcher in me, you know, feels that we've always got to have qualifiers and we've always got to have that disclaimer and and also the challenge of it too um there's no peer review so I I didn't realize how comfortable I'd become with that peer review process and it's almost a a fallback or a, a protective mechanism so that you don't make a misstep and there's not that in the public health educational space and I kind of would like to see it there because I think it would save a lot of miscommunication um and that's a whole other story. But I guess it has been really interesting. And, and like you said, I've, I've been asked to do a lot of um, videos and articles, even for our local research centre. And I think it's been really important, especially as a nurse, to, to be that, you know, trusted individual that the public can rely on to share credible information. Um, and I guess the final challenge is also knowing where your scope of expertise ends and being comfortable to say, actually, that's way outside of my content expertise and I don't feel comfortable commenting on that. I think in the interest of time, it's probably good to uh, like put a bit of a lid on it there and just start to summarize and then look forward over what the next couple of weeks to a month is going to bring both personally and with simulcast for us. Um, I guess it's really what echoes through a lot of that is um, a lot of the expertise that comes from simulation is actually synthesis and communication and clarity around diagnostics and therapeutic actions um, that that iterative quality improvement cycle. And I think that's something that is really important for all of us, whether we're in a clinical role at the moment, whether we're in a SIM um, supportive role, whether we're in a quality improvement role or whether we're 
leaning into um, being a bit of a voice of reason within uh, just our own Facebook friend networks um, with our kids, parents from school or uh, or even our colleagues providing some clarity and helping turn down the noise and um, increase the signal a little bit on some good stuff. So from a segue into what we're going to keep doing um, with a bit more time than we'd expected is adding good quality resources as they come across, uh, as we come across them or as they get sent in. And I have got a bank of a few things to update on the COVID sim section on um, simulationpodcast.com, the simulcast website. Um, Vic, did you want to sort of throw forward to anything that you've got in the pipelines? Uh, yeah, if you'll allow a slight bit of reflection as well, I suppose I also wanted to give my sort of summary of the last 30 days that I think will guide both what I'm doing sim and what we're doing simulcast. Um, I think clarity is important. I think this concept of iterative, rapid cycle, uh, rapid prototyping of improvement is good. And I think channeling, of course, my great colleague, Eve Purdy, relationships and culture are actually critical for this. And I think we've seen the best of people. And I think we've been able to shape some of those. But I also think we've relied on many of them. And the one I'd particularly uh, outline is medical and nursing collaboration in the emergency department, which in my experience has been good but the reason we've actually been able to do some of the embedding is because of that and as you say the grab bag just appearing that's good if it truly is owned by uh, the professions that are mainly using that and working together so i think for in terms of next steps both for me as a simulation person it is to really explore and make the most of that opportunity both for now but also into the future and i think in terms of simulcast i really like to have some chats with people because i feel like you know one person's experience of a pandemic is one person's experience of a pandemic uh, or even the preparation for it. So I think um, I like the idea of having some more conversations with people from around the world and locally and, uh, and no doubt some who have been less fortunate so far than we have in Queensland in terms of volume and, and see what they feel has really worked for them. Sounds great. Any reflections or throw forwards from um, you, Ben? Uh, no, I could just listen to Vic reflect for a while longer, to be honest. But um, I think to me, I was just enjoying that. But um, I think from a journal club perspective, I think uh, we've sort of felt that uh, everybody will have bigger priorities right now than uh, con contributing to the Simulcast Journal Club. So we're going to put that on hold for the moment until things settle down. And I guess I will talk to you guys about whether we want to do something more informally between us as a group. Uh, as sort of a more irregular journal club discussion in the meantime that we can nut that out. Sounds great. And Jess, where are things headed for you? Well, I think um, it's probably the perfect opportunity to start working on the uh, Simulation 101 um, series that some of Vic's crew uh, are keen to work on. And, I, and I'm thinking it's probably... Now that we've got this little lull and people might be thinking how can we use simulation effectively and make sure it works, um, now might be the time to um, get that going. 
I'm wondering if we should rename that shit is the enemy of good because um, we've now got a very good taxonomy for simulation 101 where good sits in the middle of that and there's we need to remember there's a neg- negative inflection on that as well I'm as not, the positive. I, re- I refuse to regret saying that. I think that will be the quotable soundbite out of this episode. May even change the title, formal publication title. To that. No, Jesse, can been, I do a um, brief, brief meta reflection uh, of how much I've yes. enjoyed your managing the process here? And I've recognised these beautiful phases of the debrief: your active listening and our reactions phase, your lovely facts of the case set aside for us, and then your careful circular questioning process during the uh, analysis phase. I've loved it. Thanks. I owe it all to Walter and Adam. (laughs) No, it's been really good to catch up. And I think um, a debrief is probably what I have energy for at the moment, um, rather than uh, diving into really structured sort of um, podcasts. So I think uh, that's a great point to pick up where where to head now. And um, each of us go out and try and connect up with some colleagues from um, near and far and hear what their experiences have been um i'm particularly keen to uh try and grab um one of our friends from italy um who's done who's done some recent publishing in both um cognitive load uh and also as of a few days ago um in hospital surge capacity in italy through COVID 19 and that's luca carenzo so i've called it out here that i'm going to uh, approach him um we've been two stepping around getting him on simulcast for a while so hopefully he's got some bandwidth to do that so that he's my commitment and um we will keep going forward adding resources to the website um please if you're on twitter come and find us at at sim underscore podcast um and also just check out the website at simulationpodcast.com jump in there's comments pages there's ways to upload any of resources um, scenarios that you're using uh, and running at the moment any videos that you're free and happy to share um, and we will post them to the resources page on the COVID sim section so thank you Vic Jess and Ben awesome to catch up with you thanks heaps Jesse not mate connect with us at sim underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram 